I came up with this idea, this series, after um, we started on this idea of the Acts chapter 2 church, building, growing, and Acts 2 church. And we looked at the characteristics of an Acts chapter 2 church. And in Acts 2 church, we, you, we're running them all the time, rotating them there. One thing they witness and they have a vision, but they make disciples. An Acts 2 church makes disciples. So then we got to the party and we said, okay, now, what is a disciple? If we're, if we're doing everything we can to make disciples, what is a disciple? And uh, we read and studied and researched and the staff and I met and put all that together. And we came up with four qualities of a disciple. But number one, and overwhelmingly, I think the most important is that a disciple has a biblical worldview. They think like a Christian. They, their thinking changes from the thinking of the world and a materialistic, physical, uh, materialistic worldview. It changes from that to a spiritual mind. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ, the Bible says. So if we're an Acts 2 church, among other things, we're trying to make disciples. If we're going to make disciples, we have to get our people to think different than the people of the world think. And uh, Baptist temple people need to think distinctly, but not my version of distinct. They need to think like Christians. And so this series came out of that kind of planning and thinking. Now, I don't say this often. You've not heard me say this. I think this is one of the two or three most important things I've ever done in preaching. And I don't know if you think it is or not. You may not have that kind of appeal to you. I don't know. That's, that's beside the point. But I really want you to listen. Kids, it bothers me. I don't want to jump on you and fuss at you. But I know that over there, two-thirds of you sometimes are not listening. You're on your phones, on your handheld devices. All I could do is beg you to hear me. I've been here a long time. I've studied a lot of hours. I don't know everything, but I know some things. And I, I wish you would listen to me. I could save you a lot of heartbreak, lots of regrets. Parents, I have to say, I don't know why you buy them a phone to play with in church either, by the way. While I'm jumping on people, might as well just get everybody mad. <laughs> I don't know why you put an instrument in their hand. It's going to take their brain away in time. You ought to read a new book by a Harvard professor called The Shallows. And he tells you how that technology is changing our brain. I know my, my brain, 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 brain is changing too. <laughs> and um, uh, you ought to read that book. It's a wonderful, important book. But I want you to listen to me. I want you to buy this series. I'm not trying to sell them. I don't get a dime off of anything we sell here. I wish you would buy it and listen to it in your car. Listen to it a time or two and get the essence of it. That uh, recent series on Islam has now sold between 800 and 1,000 sets. And they're everywhere. I hear from people everywhere now that's listening to those. And so what a wonderful way to get the gospel out. Please hear me. And I so much want you to, 
to grasp this biblical worldview thing, okay? Having said all that, we're on part two, the Christian view of man, which involves today the third piece of our puzzle, which is sin. We started out God, man, and sin, and we're putting the border around our uh, puzzle now. And so if you think of life as being a puzzle and a worldview as being the frame of that puzzle, the border, we're putting the pieces around the edge of the puzzle so that the other pieces, the many pieces of life will someday fit. And we began with God and then we go to man and then sin and then Jesus and then the cross and then the resurrection And then, of course, restoration, God making all things new. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word today? Follow with me. We're going to read the first 13 verses, okay? Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said? Now, that's an important phrase right there. Underscore it. He's asking a question. Did God really say, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God hath doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. The Lord God called unto Adam and said to him, Where art thou, Adam? Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid, and because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? You haven't mentioned it up until now, in other words. Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And you may be seated. Thank you. And so, in our vision of building an Acts 2 church here at the Florence Baptist Temple, and in our mission to make disciples, one of the very, very key factors is this idea of the fall. And we have read the account of the, quote, the fall of man today. The series is making sense, a reality, making sense of a crazy world. 
How do we as Christians look out at, watch the news in the evening, read the paper, hear the news that is happening in our world, and make sense of it? How do we interpret that? Well, we have a pair of glasses, not literal glasses, but figuratively, we have a pair of glasses today through which we look at the world. And those glasses are a biblical lens. We look out at the world and we interpret the events of our day, whether it be national or international news or the personal events that happen in our lives. And as I said, we're building a little frame around our puzzle here so that when we get the frame built, we will have a biblical way of looking at life and the other pieces of life can come together. I've mentioned the term a few times here, the ultimate questions. What do I mean when I use the term ultimate questions? The ultimate questions are the most important and basic questions that any person can ask of life. Who am I? Think about that. Who are you? you do you ever ask yourself that question? Who am I? Where did I come from? What is the purpose of my existence? Where am I going when this life is over? Why do things happen as they happen? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much suffering of people who don't deserve that suffering? Those are ultimate questions. If you answer those questions, the rest of life begins to make a lot of sense. If those questions are up in the air, boy, you have a hard time understanding anything that happens in life. And so we come to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is unquestionably one of the most important passages in all the Bible. And if you haven't, or if your Bible is not noted there, make a note somewhere the importance of it, identified as being that important, because it contains the story of man's fall into sin. Here's what I would name Genesis chapter 3. I would write there somewhere the saddest day in human history, the saddest day in all of human history. What do I mean by that? Well, remember that the Bible is a narrative. It's a story. It's the story of mankind. It's the study and the story of man's beginning, his origin, his purpose, and his destiny. All those ultimate questions are answered here. And actually, in the first eight or ten chapters of Genesis, every one of those ultimate questions are put to the test and answered. And so here we have a true narrative. This is not a mythological tale. This is not a storybook. This is not where somebody sat down and gave us some uh, parallel to what happened or some, uh, something that has some philosophical meaning to it. This is a true narrative, a true story. The story begins with God, as I said two weeks ago in the message. The king of the universe, the creator, 
the infinite, personal, almighty creator God. And as Genesis 1-1 teaches us, he spoke the world into existence. There wasn't anything from which he could create the world. There weren't any pre-existing materials, obviously. So he spoke the world into existence. In the beginning, God created. The word created is a Hebrew word that means to make out of nothing, to speak into existence. And so there's nothing, there's not a a material particle in all the universe, only God himself exists because he is eternal. He had no beginning. And God conceived in his mind this plan of the universe and man, all that we know today, and God spoke. And the Bible gives us in Genesis here the sequence of events of how he spoke and there was matter and energy and then he formed it and we have the creation and then of course on the last day we have a special creation and that was the subject last week now last week I spoke of man in glowing terms I built him up like you to the greatest extent I'm able I'm capable I spoke of the greatness of man his nobility, his dignity, his immortality, the sacredness of his life, the greatness and majesty of man as God made him before the founder or at the, at the creation time. And so God created man. Now, everything else he spoke into existence, but he created man from existing materials, didn't he? He created, and so man is that, that uh, man is different. He is, he is distinct in that God took the dust of the earth, the elements of the creation, the chemical elements, if you will, and God formed man out of the dust of the earth, the elements of the universe. And then after God formed man's body, he breathed unto him the breath of life. The word breath there is the word for soul, that, uh, as is translated here. And so God breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And in that, man is totally different from every other form of life on this planet. There is a gap between him and all other forms of, of life that's uh, it's unfathomable. And then God gave him dominion over that whole creation. He put him at the top of the chain. And then God created a very special place for them. The Bible refers to it as a garden, the Garden of Eden. It was a perfect environment, absolutely perfect in every way because there was no sin at that point. There was nothing to disfigure. There was nothing at all to thwart man's perfect existence. God puts him there in this paradise, and he only gives him one restriction. Now, I should call to attention when I'm using man, I'm using it in a generic sense. Obviously, he created Eve out of man's body, and so now I'm talking about two of them, a man and a woman. The man created from the dust, the woman created from the man. And God put them in this wonderful, perfect environment, the Garden of Eden, a paradise. He only gave them one restriction. 
They didn't have 10 commandments. There was no thou shalt not lie and thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery and all that. Didn't have any of that. That comes forth, oh, that comes uh, 2,000 years later. It's a long time. So he gave them one rule of life and one only, one restriction, only one thing they were not to do, and that was to eat of the fruit of one tree that grew in the middle of the garden. There's a hint as to why he said that. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, there wasn't any evil yet. That was named afterward. There isn't any evil yet in that garden. But then there's an intruder who comes, and we read about him today. He is the enemy of our king, the creator of the universe. His name is Satan. If you want to write a note there in your Bible, the word Satan means adversary. He's the adversary of God. He's the adversary of man. He's still the adversary today, the adversary with a capital A, Satan, the one who is the enemy of all that is good and all that is righteous. The way that he communicated with this man and woman, look there in verse 1, if you will, it talks about the serpent. Now, the serpent, and when you and I think of a serpent, the only image that comes to my mind is of a, of a snake, of course, crawling around on his belly in the dust, a big python or a big or a little copperhead, whatever, but a snake. And I hate snakes. I don't know about you. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? <laughs> I went out the other day, or not the other day, sometime back in my yard, and there was a little green snake about that big. I mean, I crushed that sucker. <laughs> and somebody said, well, you ought to kill that kind of snake. He can't hurt you. I said, I know it, but he can make me hurt myself. (laughs) So if you're a snake, look out. Now, the serpent, though, the Bible tells us, at least it hints of it, he was not like a serpent today. I think the serpent was the most intelligent and beautiful of all the animals that God created. Don't picture a snake crawling around on the ground. Picture something Maybe even well, we're more glorious and more intelligent than, than any animal we can picture today. See, we're seeing the snake after the fall. What was the snake, the serpent, like before the fall? I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But it does hint at it. And I think Satan went after the very best in God's creation. And I think Satan possessed the serpent. I don't know what the serpent looked like. Perhaps he was four-legged, beautiful mammal. I don't know what he was like. But Satan entered into the serpent. And so we're not talking here about a talking snake. We're talking about a beautiful, beautiful creature. Even some theologians say, well, is it possible that before the fall, animals might even have talked? I don't know. The Bible's silent on that. We're speculating, but it's interesting, isn't it? Whatever the serpent was in whatever shape he or she was, the serpent now is possessed of the devil, totally taken over and totally controlled by the adversary of our king. And through the serpent, Satan asked a question. 
The question there is in verse 1. Might be the most important question anybody ever asked. Did God really say, don't touch that fruit? Did God really say that to you? You can't eat of that. He, He restricted you. And in that question, the devil was so devious, so sly, because he put a question mark on God's integrity. If God really loved you, would he keep you from that beautiful, luscious fruit, whatever it may have been? The Bible doesn't say it was an apple. Would God do that? And motivated by pride, we want to be wise, and that's the tree of wisdom and knowledge. They took of the fruit. And in the moment that they did it, everything changed. Everything changed. Because now the creature had defied, rebelled against, disobeyed, their authority. They had disregarded and rebelled against Almighty God, their Creator, their Maker. The creature says to the Creator, No, I'm not going to do what you've told me to do. And just a little side note, especially for young people when we get outside of God's authority structure, We are always on the wrong path. When we disregard the authority in our life, we're always going the wrong direction. Well, so I call this the saddest day in history. The saddest day in history. The fall. When man fell from that exalted state of having dominion over everything in the universe, and now he falls to a common level that he couldn't even conceive of previously. And what's the result of the fall? Well, the first thing that starts happening is they start blaming each other. You look here, and they, the Lord begins to talk to them. And look down in verse number 12. Adam, why did you do that? Why did you take that fruit? Well, the woman over here made me do it. You women have heard that before, haven't you? And then he goes to the woman. He said to her, well, why did you take that? And like a comedian 4,000 years later, she said, the devil made me do it. And everybody's blaming everybody. It's the total blame shift. Nobody wants to assume responsibility for their actions. Sound familiar? Is that relevant? Up-to-date preaching there? Nobody wants to assume the ultimate responsibility for why they do what they do. And then God issues a statement. The old theologians call it the curse. I'm afraid that when I use that word in 2017, people might misinterpret as God using profanity or something. So really what happened is God issued a judgment He judged the universe because of sin entering in through Satan and through Adam and Eve at that point. And so God's judgment was on the ground. 
He said, from now on, the ground, you're going to have to till it. It's going to reluctantly yield for you the crops that used to come forth abundantly before the fall. He said to to Eve, when you have a baby, there's going to be great pain and suffering involved. To Adam, when you make a living now, when you scratch out a living, it's going to be difficult. You're going to labor by the sweat of your brow, work and labor are going to be much different than they were in the pre-fall conditions. And then he said to the serpent, you're going to crawl on your belly the rest of your life. And he said to the devil, he pronounced a judgment, a curse upon the devil. And then he drove them out of the garden. And the last and worst part of that curse was that judgment is in the day that you sin, you will die. And they died that day. They died spiritually. Their fellowship with God was gone. Now they were separated from God by their sin. They began to die and deteriorate. In other words, the second law of thermodynamics, everything moves toward disorder in the universe. Everything is winding down and moving toward disorder. And it began to occur that day. Their mental proudness was not what it was previously. They, were, they had a propensity and a tendency now to do evil in their life. Physically, they were going to die. Ultimately, they did, of course. And man was forever changed. That's why it's the saddest day in history. I'm not hyping it when I call it that. The fall. When man from his exalted position, made in the image of God, a living soul, immortal and sacred in his being, dominion over the universe, and now he tumbles, humpty dumpty like, and now he is broken. He's broken. He is infected by sin, every part of his, every cell of his body and every part of his being. Spiritually, he's alienated from God. Psychologically, he has emotional upheaval. He, Francis Schaeffer talked about that we're divided in our, in our psyche even, that our problem is sin there. Mentally, he is not as sharp as he one time was when he could name every one of the living creatures on the earth for God. And physically, he's dying from the day of his birth. And there's something dark about him now and something disturbing and something sinister-like. Everything was affected that day, the saddest day in history. Turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going through that on Sunday night, but it just happens that we're looking there for a wonderful verse that we haven't gotten to on Sunday night yet. But it gives us a little bit of insight into what happened that day. Romans 8 and 21. Because the creature, that would be mankind, Adam and Eve, they shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In other words, there's a better day coming when we will be delivered from the the judgment of the fall. But look at verse 22. It not only affected them, it affected 
the universe, the physical material universe, the planets, the stars, the field out here that the farmer works. We know that the whole creation, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And the phrase travaileth in pain is the idea of a woman in labor having a baby, excruciating pain that you and I can't understand that. I have no idea what that means except that I take it literally that the mountains and the seas and the forest and the, and, and the, the animals, that everything in this universe, there's a pressure upon them. There is a groaning. There is something out of kilter. There's something broken in it because of evil rearing its head against the creator. And like cancer... Evil spreads, and it presses down on one generation and then moves on to the next generation. And so the fall changed everything, point number two, if you're taking notes with me. The saddest day, point one, in all of history. And point two, the fall changed everything. I mean, everything has been touched by Now, we come to these ultimate questions now. Who am I, man asked. Many philosophers have said that's the most important question you ever answer. When people can't answer that question, at least in some degree, they don't have a unity in themselves. They they are fragmented within themselves. There's always conflict and battle and upheaval going on inside them psychologically. Who am I? Can you answer that question? Well, we just answered it. If you'll just now apply God's word here. Who am I today? I'll tell you who I am and who you are. I am a man. Now, you're some of you are women, of course, but we're a man or a woman. I'm a man made in God's image, but I am a fallen human being. That's who I am. And I look at life. I look at my own thought life, my own actions, my own goals and aspirations and vision and plans and my world of my family and the people that I'm speaking to. Who am I? I'm a man, but I'm a broken man. I'm a fallen man. The image of God is present in me. I can do some higher order thinking. I have a conscience. I'm self-aware. I know that I'm standing here and you're out there and and what we're doing here today. I'm self-aware. I told you last week that nothing else other than a human being is self-aware. I know I'm a man. A pig doesn't know he's a pig. If he ever begins to say, I'm a pig, he's changed into something else. Pigs don't know they're pigs. But I know I'm a man. I'm a human being. I bear the image of God. I have characteristics and qualities, and so do you, of course, that no other part of creation has. But I'm a broken man. I'm not like Adam was. You ever been to the fair or the, well, I think of the state fair or the county fair here. And they always had this little thing. They've had it ever since I was a little boy. They, people never tire of it. 
And they have this fun house, they call it. And you go and you stand in front of these mirrors and they've bent these mirrors and you know, this ear pops out like that when you stand there and you're, you're all face and your feet are short or, you know, what, it distorts everything about you. Spiritually, that's what the fall did to us. It distorted us. Psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, we're not what God originally made us to be. Paul describes that. You're in Romans 8 still? Just turn back to chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And I look there and I begin down in verse number 17. Paul is describing here, I'm a man, I'm made in the image of God, but there's evil in me. Romans 7, 17. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin dwelleth in me. This is written by the apostle Paul. This is a Christian. Sin dwells in me, he says. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me. I desire to do the right thing, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I want to do or would do, I don't do, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, if I find myself doing the things I know I should not do, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I want to do good, evil is always present with me. And I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, and there's a war going on inside me, the law of my mind, and it brings me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. It brings me into captivity. Notice that phrase. That phrase simply says that sin is more than an action, a thought, or a deed. Sin is a power. And it has the capacity to bring you into captivity. We've so trivialized sin in our day that we think sin is just doing something bad or saying something bad or thinking something bad. No, sin goes far beyond that. It has a power that absolutely will bring you into captivity, make you a slave. Don't trivialize the power of sin. So my personal identity, who am I this morning? The philosophers ask. Every philosopher has asked that question. Every great religion asks that question. What is man that thou art mindful of him? That was last week's text. Who am I? I'll tell you what I am. I'm a two-part being in this sense. My personal identity today is partly that I am a man made in God's image I am a result of God's direct creation upon me. But then, secondly, I am a result of the fall of Adam. I'm both. I have this glorious part that God made me in his image. And then I have this other side, a result of the fall. Now, listen to me carefully. I have to go quickly, and I'm almost reading a list of stuff here, but I want you to get it. All that I am 
by God's creation, I need to affirm in my life as a Christian. Let me repeat that. Everything that God made me, that he put into me as a human being made in his image, I need to constantly affirm that to myself if I'm going to have a biblical worldview. I mean by that my rationality, I'm a rational creature. I have the power of reason. I have the power of knowledge. I have some wisdom. I need to affirm I am morally responsible. I need to listen to the voice of conscience where that conscience has been educated by the word of God. I am a sexual being. God ordained my gender. Talk about relevant. He made them male and female, not 32 derivations thereof. I am not a male because I think I'm a male. I'm a male because God made me a male. On my family life, God has a plan for me in the a small and the most important part of my life outside of my own relationship to him. And that is a monogamous marriage. One woman, one man for life. That's God's plan. And a nuclear family, a daddy, a mama. Let me say it again. A daddy and a mama and some kids. And if you don't have a daddy and a mama, whatever you put on the birth certificate, and they can't have those kids, then wait a minute. And the nuclear family. And then I have gifts, talents, appreciation for the beautiful. We enjoyed the music this morning. No animal creates music. We go out here and there's art somewhere on the wall. What what artist or or what, what animal ever conceived of drawing a painting? What animal ever planted a garden? What animal has the capacity to design a home and talk to an architect and conceive something on paper before it's ever carried out? And then I affirm stewardship. God put me in charge of some resources of my life, my health, my time, my possessions. He put within me an innate hunger for love. I want to be loved. I want to be accepted, and so do you. God built that into us. I must affirm that in my life. My desire to know and worship God, only man worships. God put that desire to know the creator. He's the one that put that inside of us. And then the fall came, and everything that I got from the fall, I must deny. Do you get it now? Everything I am by creation, I must affirm. And everything I get through the fall, I must deny. I must deny my irrationality when I strike out and there's no reason for it. I must deny my lustful, immoral desires. I must deny my sexual perversity, the blurring of sexual distinctions and using God's gift of sex in the wrong way. 
I must deny my fascination with the ugly and the bizarre when God put me in a beautiful universe with no ugly and no bizarre other than what man has done to it. I must deny my lazy refusal to develop my gifts and my intellectual capacities. I must deny my tendency to waste and to pollution. I must deny the focus on myself that destroys my family life and destroys my relationships with other people. And most of all, I must deny the idolatry, the worship of self and of others and of things rather than of Almighty God. That's who I am up there. There's the answer to the ultimate question right in Genesis 3. All that I am by creation, I am to affirm. I am a man made in the image of God, but sin came and everything that came because of sin, I must deny. That's who I am today. That's who you are. And Jesus one time said, if any man would follow me, let him deny himself. What was he talking about? He was talking about that right up there on that screen. Everything that I am because of the fall, I deny. And everything that I am because of God's image in me, then I'm to affirm. Now that's God's narrative of reality today. God's narrative of reality. People don't recognize in our world today that we're fallen. The only people talking about this are strange birds like myself that believe the Bible. If they believed that in Washington, we'd have a different country. If they believed that in the world of business, we'd have a different atmosphere in the country. People today don't recognize, generally speaking, that we're fallen And they don't recognize that God has a right to make the rules. You see, if you make make everything, you got the right to tell everybody how to use it and what to do with it, don't you? If you're the creator, you have the right to create the rules. Here's what the world says this morning. Right and wrong, wrong simply reflect the rules that civilized people have agreed upon. And that right and wrong is just a way that society has determined to help us get along. Society really determines values. What a lie. Satan has always been the liar. He's lying to us today. I heard a man the other day on a talk show say this. Who is to judge what is right and wrong about some of these issues in the world today? And here's what he said. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Total relativism. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. There are no rules. It depends on how you look at it. So often I hear people talking about the rules of life, right and wrong, morality. And here's how they say, here's how they say it. Well, here's how I feel about it. Is right and wrong determined by how I feel? Think with me. Is right and wrong determined by how we feel? No, no, no. You know better than that. 
And man really has no logical explanation for why this evil came in. He has two explanations for the presence of evil. It's either heredity or environment. They taught me that in high school. They're still teaching that. Evil's caused by our environment, by society. And so you have the social justice idea. We're going to straighten out society, and when we get society straightened out, well, then everything will be okay. And if we fix the environment, society, people will change. And so we need to pass legislation, and we've passed a trillion laws. Still hadn't made man any different. Well, we need to educate people. It's ignorance that causes man to sin. No, we've tried that too, haven't we? Well, it's economics. It's poverty that makes people sin. No, it may increase temptation, but it doesn't actually make anybody sin. And then the second thing that our society proposes is that evil is caused by our heredity. It's biology. It's evolution. And has the, I heard Richard Dawkins talking about people have a selfish gene. The only thing I ever heard him say that I agreed with. They do have a selfish gene. But he ended up saying, you know, it's just all genetic. Lions do what lions do. They're neither cruel nor noble. They're just surviving. And the evolutionist, ultimately, that's where evolution leads, even in human behavior. And so man's solutions have failed. Turn quickly with me. I want you to see one verse. It's in Galatians 1, 4. And it's in one little phrase. It's God's summary. God summarizes what he wants you to know about the world today. And I don't want to miss it today. Galatians 1, 4, referring to Jesus, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Ah, there's what God says about the world today. There's God's view of society. Mark it in your Bible. A present evil world world. Pretty dark view of the world, right? And we know that sin and evil dominate our society. And so my conclusion is this. Now listen to me carefully. We're not machines that need to be fixed. We're humans who need to be forgiven. We're not going to be fixed by something in our heredity or our environment. We need God's forgiveness. We've sinned against the Creator. And once we get that one decision made, then we begin to line up something very important. That's not the solution to every problem, but it's a big, big step in a biblical worldview that there's this infinite, personal Creator God. He created us. He gave us the rules because he made us. He has a right to give the rules. The rules apply to everybody and to everything. God's God's absolute moral standards. And we're not victims of our environment or our heredity. Sin is not out there. It's in me. David Limbaugh. He's quite a theologian. I've enjoyed reading his books. 
And he said this, and I quote, sin is not just a thought, a word, or an action. Sin is a power. And Jesus Christ is the one who can deliver you from its power. He can break the power of sin. He said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.